I'm Daniel Chacon. Welcome to Words on a Wire. Today, my guest is El Paso's favorite, Sergio Troncoso. He has been on this show many, many times, and the reason why is because he publishes many, many books. Just recently, we had him on to talk about his collection of stories called A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant Son. It's a collection of stories, and we've had him on, actually, I don't even know how many times, but today we're going to talk about his latest book, Nepantla Familias, an anthology of Mexican-American literature on families in between worlds. Stick around and let's talk to Sergio Troncoso. Words on a Sergio, welcome back to Words on a Wire. I think other than Juan Felipe Herrera, you have you are the person who has appeared most on this show, and it's always good to talk to you. Welcome back. Wow, thank you for inviting me, Daniel, and that's quite a company to keep, Juan Felipe Herrera, one of my heroes. Yeah, I was kind of uh, making a joke. The fifth time he's been on, he was on our show, I says, uh, Juan, you're part of the five, uh, the five uh, guest club, and we're going to get you a jacket. It's going to be embroidered <laughs> and, <laughs> from, from an old episode of Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I'll be happy with a good coffee cup. Oh, that's a great idea. Well, well, welcome um, back. Uh, it's always great to hear from you, but uh, we're going to talk today about your latest book. It's a, a book you edited called Nepantla Familias, an anthology of Mexican-American literature on families in between worlds. And I'm going to start with a with a tremendous cliche, as much as we're told to avoid cliches as writers. I'm going to start with one. This book, which, by the way, is a beautiful book. It's an anthology of fiction, nonfiction, poetry um, about families, about families living in between worlds. Um, this book is a labor of love, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I've been living in many ways this Nepantla all of my life. And, um, you know, I mean, I wanted to create... First of all, a very forward-looking anthology, an anthology in which most of the work, as you know, there's 30 pieces and 25 have never been published before. So I wanted to really showcase the Mexican-American talent that we have in our writing community. And uh, it was a lot of work, and we can get into that if you want. But, um, but for me, it's in many ways showing everyone, the literary world in particular, the kind of tremendous talent we have in our writers, uh, the poets, the fiction writers, the nonfiction writers, and delving deep into this concept of Nepantla and through our families, which is, I think, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. The first time I heard of the word Nepantla, which I assume has existed for hundreds of years, if, if it's a Nahuatl word, was um, reading Stephanie Elizondo uh, Grist in her uh -huh. book, All the Angels and Saints. And then I'm pretty sure Norma Cantu uh, writes about it in one of her recent books. And I'm wondering what it is about this term itself that has attracted you. Were you in dialogue with other books or is it a zeitgeist that this that this word is now 
coming being becoming to be uncovered by uh, by Latinx writers. Well, you know, for me, my I guess my first intellectual, you know, experience with the word Nepantla was through Gloria Anzaldúa. Mm-hmm. And 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 her her great book. I think she's a tremendous thinker, and um, and I took her as a philosophical thinker as well as a, a writer. And and for me, it, it, when I read Gloria Anzaldúa, it really and she talked about Nepantla. You know, it was for me transformative in many ways because it brought together these ideas that I had been living with. Uh, living in between cultures, between languages, um, sometimes messily, sometimes in conflict, trying to adopt new values as as an American, you know, coming from the border, but also keeping some of the old values that my parents taught me. So this 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 living in between this borderland existence, that by the way, stays with you even. Once you leave El Paso, once you leave whatever physical borderland you live in, it still lives in you, whether you're in New York City or Connecticut or wherever you're at. And so so for me, this this concept was where I first discovered it through Andaldua. And 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 I and I knew in simply because of my own experience that many of these conflicts and issues of how you belong, where you belong, the the conflict of being pushed and pulled by many different forces and values and heritages, it all happens within your family. That's really where, mm-hmm. when you fall in love with someone from a different religion or a different culture or even a different language, where you have to make that resolution or where it's not going to work. Uh, when the The arguments and conflicts we have with our parents about what we're adopting and what we are leaving behind, you know, as we become more embedded in this, in this, in in the quote unquote American community. And as we travel beyond the border, this all happens within families. So, so for me, you know, and uh, that's, that's why this concept was so important. And and I first sort of uncovered it through Andaldua and just uh, philosophically started when I would read, you know, philosophy, whether German or French philosophers, I would encounter similar ideas, mm-hmm. but not using the, the Nahuatl word. You know, that's a that's an excellent answer. And because I think in many ways, it reflects what uh, Latinx, especially Chicanx literature has been has been doing, uh, you know, for a while or, or, how you know, the territory that we are able to discover uh, living between worlds, and a lot of that, like as you said, filtered through or even uh, inseparable from our family experience, from even from the food that we eat, the the the, the borders where we live, uh, the linguistic borders. But I'm wondering uh, why Nepantla now seems to be reemerging as an important word why 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 today is it be, why is it coming back and and what is it about this word that is resonating so strongly with us well lady i think one of the reasons it's certainly going to be you know beyond the colonization of what happened to all of us to to the origin to Nahuatl. And I think there's been a lot of interest mm-hmm. in, in Nahuatl words and, and history. But you know, for me, you know, literally the title, 
in many ways re represented what I was trying to do with this anthology. It's Nepantla in Nahuatl, familia in Spanish, and then the the the, the rest of the title and anthology of Mexican American literature on families in between worlds in English. You know, these three linguistic worlds, in many ways, we inhabit and go be, you know, uh, in between all the time, whether whether we do it purposefully or we do it subconsciously. And I think um, it, 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 it's a deeply philosophical word in many ways, mm -hmm. because, um, you know, I mean, you, you, you can talk about how, you know, somebody like Wittgenstein would talk about how language only becomes useful when you use it. Mm -hmm. And and for me, Nepantla is in, in that sort of form that you only really understand Nepantla if you live it, right. if you're experiencing it. And and you experience the messy resolutions and compromises and creation of something very new called the Mexican-American experience that only people who have gone through it will appreciate. Uh, but I, I also think it's a very uh, universal word. Mm -hmm. You know, I think if you're, uh, you know, as I point out in the introduction, there are now about a million Americanos who live in Mexico, you know, and are <laughs> and are experiencing sort of the flip side of Nepantla uh -huh. as Americanos in in Mexico. But anyone who has crossed borders, linguistic borders, religious borders. Geographic borders, uh, psychological borders, even gender borders, you know, you are experiencing a sense of Nepantla and trying to find some sort of new identity that encapsulates all of you, not just part of you. Well, in, the, in using the word, then you're kind of empowering the word and uh, empowering yourself in, in that you're giving yourself that word and that tradition. Yeah, no, and, and, and saying I'm not turning back, and this is our, our word, this is our experience, and it's a powerful experience. It's a powerful philosophical, psychological experience that I think all of us should pay attention to because as I, as I write in my own essay, you know, in this, in this introduction, in, in, the, uh, in the collection, I think it really gets to the root of, of living truthfully with your life. If you're living in the Pantla, you're really not uh, deciding, I belong here, I belong there. You're actually questioning your very idea of place. Mm -hmm. You're questioning where you belong. And in answering those questions, it actually fortifies you and fortifies your identity um, by answering the questions. But if you assume, oh, I always belong here or I, I don't always belong here, you're in many ways just closing your, your, your mind to the possibilities of, of, of a liminal existence. I think it's very enriching, right. and I think it's powerful. Absolutely. And even, you know, you were, you were making references to some sort of universal, I don't know if that's the exact word you use, but some sort of universal uh, uh, experience that, uh, you know, that Napantla can, can express this, this uh, division, this border, this alienation, even that you could even argue that, uh, you know, that this word is at the root of a lot of literature in, to begin with uh, the, the, you know, it's Raskolnikov could relate to this, uh, you know, <laughs> right? Exactly. And uh, and and there is there is some alienation involved, but at the same time, 
the fact that you're using the term napantla, that, that, that it's a term that is coming back in use, is, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, owning it and making it a strength and not a weakness. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's um, even in the cover of the book, I, I was very instrumental in getting this cover for this book, you know, with Antonio Castro, the, the great artist from El Paso, by the way. Yeah, he's a professor uh, here at UTEP, I believe. Yeah, a graphic, a great graphic artist. And, you know, it's a cover of a man's back uh-huh. and there's a scar right at the right at the base of his back. And the pantla is, is on his back. So it's in many ways hearkening back to Anzaldúa and the the pain and the sacrifices, but yet the healing that you carry on your shoulders that you is exemplified by your back, by what you carry mm-hmm. all the time. And yet you carry it. Yet it's also a, a scar and remembrances of 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 the the pain that you suffered through this existence of the Mexican-American experience of alienation, of, of racism, of, of, and, and also of making, of fighting your way and, and struggling to find your place in, in this country, uh, even despite all of that. So, so it is so in many ways, at the same time as it reflects a, a wound, it also reflects a victory mm-hmm. and, and not you know, not not uh, not succumbing to the the wounds that you suffered on your back. Hmm. And I don't know if that makes any sense. Oh no, it makes yeah no definitely it it makes complete sense. And um, this whole anthology apparently started with a dream. Can you tell us about that dream? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I write about it in the introduction. This is a dream I've had for decades and it, it comes back every once in a while I, I used to have it a lot a lot more when i was a kid but i would dream that i was on this beam and the beam is surrounded by either clouds or just fuzzy areas and i am on this beam and the entire dream is really just falling to one side or falling to the other and then it's it's just repeats. It's almost like a cycle, falling to one side and falling to the other. And there is a sense of danger, but also a sense of excitement, a sense of the unknowability of what's going to happen to me. And I'm just falling in between this beam from one side to the other, and then back on the beam. And so, and, and so for me, in many ways, it was a, a, a physical. Uh, a, an image metaphor for Nepantla of, of fighting to, you know, who am I? Where do I belong? Uh, what is my place? And, and, and the strange thing, even in falling to one side, you would, I would get the sense that I would understand the side I left behind better. <laughs> so, so, so it, it's even recursive in that way. So that, you know, falling more, you know, becoming better at English becoming better at German, it would actually strangely allow me to understand my Spanish roots, my Mexican roots, uh, where my parents came from. And, and, and so it all became, I guess, in a, in a way, a journey mm-hmm. of self-discovery. And, and that's how I would interpret the dream. And, and I interpreted it at different points in my life, sometimes of falling in between Spanish and English, mm-hmm. sometimes falling 
um, you know, between the values my parents gave me and then the values that I would keep from them and some that I would, you know, leave behind that I didn't like. Um, sometimes it was literally the physical border existence of traveling between El Paso and Juarez. Um, sometimes it was falling in love, you know, when I was younger and, 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 uh, you know, falling in love, should I, at one point in my life, you know, I had a Mexican girlfriend and I cer certainly seriously thought about, well, maybe I should go live in Mexico, you know, and forget this country mm -hmm. and go South. And so, so this dream is, was interpreted in many different ways and I still have it, um, you know, and, and I think as I get older, I guess it becomes, as I write in the introduction, of being between life and death. Of wow. even, even considering your own death, mm -hmm. considering your mortality, allows you to appreciate and have more, much more of a gusto for the life you do have. So mm -hmm. falling to one side actually opens up the other side as well. I like what you said about... Um when you're going back and forth and you're falling to one side, it's scary, but ex but exciting. And I can't help but think of my daughter who, uh, you know, I, I, whom I think a lot about, uh, two years old, and I take her to the park and I put her on the little swing, you know, the ones that you stick your legs through. And she gets so excited and scared at the same time, but she wants more. She just wants, she wants that excitement. And, and I could see that as a metaphor of living in uh a land both literal and figurative where you could see Mexico from your backyard. I think uh, you made, or somebody made a uh, Sarah Palin uh, uh, comparison. It is pretty exciting. Every time I go into Juarez, it's exciting. Every time I go home and I'm with my family, it's exciting in a different way that it is when I go into a department meeting. It's, 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 it's going into a completely different world and it is very exciting. Yeah. And, and, and the great thing, you know, these writers, I mean, some great, you know, these, I, I chose the writers, you know, that I love. I mean, you know, starting with you, Daniel, of course, Daniel Chacon is in, in this collection and David Romo and, you know, Reina Grande and Stephanie Elizondo Grist, who you mentioned earlier, Rigoberto Gonzalez and Jose Antonio Rodriguez and uh, Cheryl Luna, Deborah Paredes, Diana Lopez. I mean, so many great writers that I've always admired. And, and they, you know, they wrote sometimes very, very difficult things that they had to face of living in between existences, but also these, these hard fought victories of the, where they understood um, they went one way and maybe sometimes they've got rejected, but then they, they, they reached some sort of resolution and victory within themselves. So I think all of, all of these uh, works, works of art, um, in many ways teaches us, um, and, uh, and not just Mexican Americans, but anyone who crosses borders, you know, what it is to live in these messy existences between many different cultures or geographies or, you know, or countries. When you put out the call, when you put out your intentions to writers that you were putting this together and, and, uh, inviting them to submit or when you you know sent out the the call to the general uh the 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 general public and then you started to get all these these manuscripts especially from the writers that you admire did you can you tell us about a, a, 
a, t- a point or time when you were putting this together that somebody sent you something and you read it and it just made you weep? Well, <laughs> maybe it happened more than one. <laughs> I imagine. Um, but yeah, I mean, it. Um, you know, for me, I was very choosy in who I wanted to be in this anthology. So I first started by asking the writers whose work I love. And, and thankfully, I know many of them. And, and they responded. And I told them, I don't want, if you can give me new work, that is what I want. That is what will take priority, your unpublished work. And some, some writers, uh, I needed to convince. Uh, for example, I'll, I'll talk about Stephanie Elizondo Gris. Uh, Stephanie, um, and I'm, I'm sure she's okay if I talk about it. Her father had just died. And, and she couldn't write anything. And I said, you should write about that. You should write about, you know, this this relationship you had with him. And she was planning on going to Mexico and and doing Dia de los, Dia de los Muertos. And, and that's exactly what she wrote about. And I thought I found, found that very powerful because, you know, she had to face what her father meant to her and also trying to understand how she belongs in terms of being Mexican-American by traveling mm-hmm. to Mexico on Dia de Muertos. I thought that was a very powerful essay because, because you know, I, I, I felt this is really searing and important, but that's exactly what you should be writing about. And that's the conversation I had with Stephanie about that. Um, I also really... Uh, love the Rio Rigoberto Gonzalez is a Wonder Woman T-shirt. Oh, that's a beautiful you know, one, a beautiful essay. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is because it's about childhood and it's about you know uh, finding your place. And then his grand, he had a very conflictual relationship with his grandfather, and um, and his grandfather, as he says in the essay, was abusive toward him, um, and how he made that resolution. You know, through the Wonder Woman T-shirt, I think it was just beautifully done, and that that I think sort of got to me. I mean, there's so so many I could just spend the the entire, you know, the entire um, uh, hour just talking about the but so many of the great uh, pieces here. I mean, another one that I really uh, loved because of this this sort of conflict uh, was Diana Lopez's dutiful daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about, it's, it's, that's a fiction piece. And it's about um, this, this young woman who wants to make more of herself uh, to being a phlebotomist. That's what her goal is. That's what she wants to achieve. And her parents don't understand why she's trying to get beyond the job that she has. She's trying to reach for something that she you know, sort of envisions, but not quite. A few people help her. And there's this bittersweet quality of reaching, but not quite reaching um, the goal that you want in that story that I think spoke, you know, a lot to me about Mm -hmm. um, my own parents, you know, understanding and not really understanding what I was doing in the Ivy League or what I was doing as a writer. And so there's a certain loneliness to that. Right. When you're pushing beyond what your parents, um, you know, what your parents did that I think uh, was very, uh, it hit me right, you know, right where it hurt. Mm-hmm. And so there there were so many, I mean, you, you will see, you know, uh, 
if you read this this collection, by the way, and the interesting thing is I actually ordered it in a certain way to create a kind of wave for the reader. In my mind, that's how I envisioned it. Um, because because the, as, a, as an editor, by the way, you only have one order that you can create, which is what goes first, what goes second and third and, and toward the end. And 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 other, some readers will just pick up the, the anthology and start with a random poem or a random uh, nonfiction piece or a, a short story and just jump around. And that's that. Of course, I can't control. But but I wanted to create a certain effect for that reader that read it from start to finish. So one follows the other, follows the other. That there there is a, a vague, even thematic. Uh, sometimes linguistic connection between the the different uh, nonfiction pieces, the poetry pieces, even between the nonfiction and the poetry, and then the poetry and the short stories. Mm-hmm. That I, in my mind, felt this this story belongs here, because here we're getting to the mm-hmm. metaphysical, or here we're getting to the psychological, or here we're getting to this word that both of them are discussing, although they may be very different pieces. So I wanted to create a certain sort of wave in my mind that I saw as I as I or that I experienced as I read them in different orders. Um, so I wonder if and people have commented on that that it actually reads very well together, even if you start from from start to finish. And so that that was my idea. Um, by ordering it that way. The blogger, Michael Sedano, um, uh, on uh, La Bloga, writes uh, in a review of this book, it's 250 pages of joy. (laughs) 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 And, And also sadness, but he agrees with you in terms of the order. He specifically spoke about the order of it and how that contributed to the, um, uh, the uh, meaning and the experience. And I, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that order. I understand you kind of went from piece to piece, but why did you decide to order it according to genre? It starts with nonfiction, then goes to poetry, and then ends with fiction. Why not just put all the genres together? Well, you know, it, it, for, for me it was... I felt the nonfiction pieces at the beginning gave a, a global view of what Netpantla meant, of what you know the the, the first couple of ones, um, and and sort of were good introductions into um, into the idea of Netpantla through through um, through the family. And so that then I started thinking in my mind, I think the nonfiction should go first. I just simply also thought the nonfiction was easily accessible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it and it and it is, you know, in in some ways people really do gravitate to what is real, or at least what is written with that marker of this actually happened to me. Um and so so that was my idea of first putting in the fiction and then I toyed with 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 moving the poetry around. And and I did toy at a certain point of having everything mixed together, but for me the mixing was too jarring. For me, the mm-hmm. the mixing of of fiction with nonfiction with poetry uh, was a little too jarring, and it didn't seem to have some sort of uh, wave that 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 
was appealing to the reader. And so for me, I, I thought, well, the, fic- the nonfiction would, would be best first. And then how, which ones go first and which ones take you on a certain ride and then keep deepening that ride together. And I, I also thought, by the way, um, of going from, um, and you see a little bit of this in the fiction, of going from the realistic to the metaphysical. Mm. So there's the mm. metaphysical concept of Nepantla. And so so some of the ones toward the end are more, you know, are more metaphysical aspects of of Nepantla and that I thought would, would end well. And by the way, uh, I don't know if you know if you've noticed that Kirkus Review gave it a starred review. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw so, that. which is which is very hard to get. And so I'm happy people are recognizing the great talent we have in our community of writers. So- um, and this, go ahead. No, 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 I'm sorry. I, I, I was nothing. Please continue. No, I mean, for, for me, that's, you know, it's gratifying to me that these writers in our, our anthology is getting some recognition because I think too often, you know, we, we take a play somehow, uh, that is that is not at the forefront of American literature, and this is great literature. This is great American literature through the Mexican American lens. And I think you know we have to stand up and for ourselves and for the work that we're producing, the high quality work that we're producing. And and for me, you know, creating this book was a way to show that. Okay, let me ask you a question that's going to seem really weird, Sergio, but you know me, I'm kind of weird, <laughs> and so let, let it be weird. When you go to the grocery store and you have all your stuff in the cart and you start to put it on the conveyor, uh, do you do it according to category? Like your cans and then the breads and then the vegetables? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you what I do. No, I'll tell you what I do. <laughs> what do you I do? Am thinking of, I am thinking of the cashier who I know because uh-huh. I, I go to the same place all the time and I want to make it easier for her. Uh-huh. So I put the heavy, I put the heavy stuff first, uh-huh. the milk and whatever is going to go at the bottom of the bag. And I put the lighter stuff like the vegetables or the, you know, the stuff that's going to get mashed toward the end. Simply because I want to make it easier. For her. Yeah. So does, and, does and that make, I'm sorry. Does that what Does that what? I mean, does that make me sort of, uh, I don't know. Um, no, know. no, it doesn't make you anything. It just, I, I'm just thinking about the way you organize ideas and the way you organize thought. It makes a lot of sense to me. I loved the streamlined uh, organization of this, not only in terms mm-hmm. of the progression of each section, but each section. But somebody as chaotic as I am probably would have just you know, uh, done it differently. And so this is reflecting that, that, uh, uh, love you have for the cashier. Let's put it that way, that you want to make it easier, easier on her. And in terms of the organization of the book, you want to make it Mm -hmm. 250 pages of joy for the reader. Exactly. (laughs) The reader, the reader was my cashier. I was thinking of the reader, like what, what is a great experience for this reader um, and, and a reader who's Mexican-American and one who's never met a Mexican-American to go into this experience and write it like a wave. And so for me, organization is more like a song. You know, I'm thinking of a certain wave or song mm-hmm. as I read work. And so for me, th- these are the pieces and in this order that created the song mm-hmm. I had in my head about Nepantla. Yeah, it makes complete sense. The song, the song that is 
really uh, uh, sung for a reason, sung for a purpose. Uh, right. And, uh, yeah. You know, it's it's funny because I'm I'm thinking about uh, you know how much you can uh, you can make predictions about people based on how they unload their grocery cart. And my uh-huh. unloading the grocery cart is completely chaotic. It drives my wife crazy because she has to have organization and she has her own particular <laughs> reason for organizing it. Uh, but, uh, you know, and you're thinking about the cashier and my wife is thinking about, I don't know, symmetry. And when I'm unloading my uh, uh, cart onto the conveyor belt, I'm probably thinking about whether or not uh, uh, it's going to be a full moon tonight. <laughs> <You know? laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but you know, but but even organization, I think it's, it's too much organization. It's too staid, too predictable. So, so for me, I, I like you know, I like sort of the music metaphor because I listen to a lot of music, mm-hmm. and music is very unpredictable, but it's also very organized, and it has that combination. Or, or, that, or, or let me I, let me coattail on that and, and say that musical is predictable, but in surprising ways, surprising but inevitable ways. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I think that's a great way to look at it. Yeah, because we're hearing we're hearing a work of art, and it surprises us. Yet at the same time, those surprises are organic to the piece. Right, and, and that, it, it creates it creates its own reality within it. Right, right, absolutely. Um, let me ask you something else, and I, I I'm going to try to get to the to the uh, the heart of this question. We talk about Nepadla as a term, as a Nahuatl term that you first discovered in Gloria Anzaldúa. And we remember when Chicano literature was still called Chicano literature before it became Chicanx literature, when it was at its, you know, when it was very uh, fortunately interrupted, you know, interrupted the machismo of early literature or a lot of the early literature. When we look at things like Max Martinez and and stuff that we probably wouldn't want to read very much today, uh, uh, we remember that there were a lot of uses of Aztec words, of Nahuatl words, and it almost even became a cliche. Oh, you know, you throw in a few Nahuatl words and, you know, and the white people are happy. They love our literature, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Right. But this term, Napantla, which you got from Gloria Ansaldúa, who at the beginning was subverting the patriarchy and the 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 uh, uh, you know the the gender biased of early literature, whether it was Chicano literature or even you know uh, North American New York East Coast John Updike literature, subverting it with this term, it has come back and it's being used a lot, like by you and by others, and 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 there was even a panel, I believe, at AWP last year with Nepantla in the title. It's becoming a very important term. We're rediscovering, we're, we're rediscovering it and uncovering things, uh, but. This anthology that you created, you have mostly new writers, writers of this generation. You don't go back and look for, you know, the generation of, of like, uh, there's no um, uh, Jose, uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, oh, my God. my uh, uh, There's no Villasenor. There is Sandra Cisneros, which is really awesome because <laughs> I love her. And I, right. think, I think she's I think she's just brilliant. And uh, 
But um, I'm wondering. But new work from her, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. But I'm wondering why you didn't go back and, and include voices like Gloria Ansaldu or old, uh, uh, you know, different generations. Why you're focused on the new generation? Because for me, it was a future-oriented anthology. And I, and I wanted, in, in some ways, for example, I was thinking of my 26-year-old kid, you know, son, Aaron, and my 23-year-old, about to be 24-year-old son, Isaac, and their generation. Like, what? how could they experience Mexican-American uh, experience through literature? And so for me, it was future-oriented. And I, I think it is also, I think you probably point rightly, that it is somewhat of a critique <laughs> to into what existed, let's say, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, but it, it's, and, and for me, the Andaldua uh, inheritance is right on the cover. You know, mm-hmm. for me, she, she was uh, a feminist and I was, a, I'm a feminist. I believe in that. And, and using her concept taught me a lot about philosophy, taught me a, a lot about how philosophy matters to the Mexican-American experience. And so, and so, so for me, um, it was very purposeful to have this anthology be future oriented and looking at this next generation and new writing. You know, I also wanted something that would be useful to the reader, something that the reader had not experienced before and, and, or largely had not experienced before. And so, so for me, those were my challenges as an editor. That's what I wanted. And by the way, I was very choosy. And the problem with being an editor is sometimes you have to reject your friends. And that <laughs> yeah, you're gonna and have to happens. you're gonna have to tell me a story about that. But I want well, to co- but I, I want to coattail names. Yeah. But, well, but, then know, forget I it. I want to ask you. But I want to coattail <laughs> on what you're saying about this. Uh, um, there's a cliche, a cultural cliche, I think that first came from a movie uh, with I forget who it was, but uh, she says, "You had me at hello." Right, right before, the, right before the guy does the "I love you" speech, she said, that, you had that me Jerry Maguire. That, that's it. That's it. Well, when I opened up this book, you had me at Reina Grande. I mean, when I saw her <laughs> now, I go, okay, you know. I mean, I, you know, David Dorado Romo is the first one in the anthology, and of course, I was very happy to see him. And then you have a, uh, an essay, but then Reina Grande, and then Stephanie uh, Elizonda Gris, and then Francisco Cantu, and it goes on and on. And uh, I think the the writers that you chose were just just it's exciting. It's exciting to read these works. Well, what well, well, one person I won't tell you who it was, but a very famous writer called it the murderous the murder uh, row of of writers for for uh, for our community. What like does that some mean? of the like you know well uh, like in uh, I don't know if you remember the New York Yankees. It's an old. Uh, Murderer's Row from the Yankees was like Babe Ruth followed by Lou Gehrig oh, followed oh. by Joe DiMaggio. You know, like the that three is a metaphor hitters. that even I did not understand, and I am old. It's, a, it's an old forties, <laughs> fifties metaphor, but the Murderer's Row of, right. of Mexican American writers, which means the best of the best. Right, right. That's that's really what it means. And uh, I just have to point out that you included Irena Lara Silva, who I think is oh, uh, is is creating a really unique uh, uh, Latinx voice and. Uh, uh, she does. She's doing something different, and she does it very well in here. And also, uh, a shout out to uh, uh, Octavio Solis and 
David Dominguez, Cheryl Luna. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a fantastic uh, it, it's a fantastic anthology, and I, I hope this does very very well. So before we go, we're running out of time. But before we go, can you tell us who was rejected and whether or not they hate you now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm gonna. I am not. Never. We will never reveal those names, um, because because they're my friends. And frankly, it's not. Uh, they they're actually great writers. I'm kidding. It, what what they turned in was just not didn't fit the anthology, and so right. so I had to say no, thank you. And then and that's what happened. You know, yeah, I mean, it's I've happened to stuff. me many times. Somebody says, "Hey, you know, I'm doing this anthology, and I give them something that may not be what they're looking for. It, it it's just part of the business." Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's never personal. I mean, for me, it, it was for me, I have to respect the book right. that I'm trying to create. And for me, if it fits in, in the book that I'm trying to create and then I will take it. Um, and that's that really the only consideration, not, uh, you know, not if they're my friends or, or whatever. It, I never think about that. I just think about the book and, and this art that I'm trying to create on the page as an editor. Um, so, so I, I hope people love it and use it in schools and, you know, and, and call me up and, and we'll do a zoom video with some uh -huh. of, um, some people, some students that, you know, and they want to talk about Nepanta Familia. I'm happy to do it. As an editor, you are, you know, this is, this is, uh, uh, you know, a book that you shaped and put together and, and, and saw from beginning to the end. And you have this wonderful, what did you call it? Murderer's Row. These, all these murderers right. on the page. Uh, yeah. yeah, these wonderful <laughs> murderers. And I'm, I'm honored to be Murderer's one. Row. I'm honored to be one of the murderers. That's hard to say, murderers. Um, okay, think of the New York Yankees and think of yourself as Joe DiMaggio. Yeah, well, actually, you know, mine is the penultimate story. So I'm probably not Joe DiMaggio. I'm probably somebody, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, Hopefully we'll Yogi Berra. <laughs> but anyway, my my question was, um, I imagine that you're going to get a lot of why wasn't so and so included in this. Have you <laughs> have you have you gotten that? And what is your response? Oh, all the time. I mean, for, first of all, uh, I may have asked them, but they didn't have time, or they were busy with another book, or you know. Or they turned in something and it didn't work. So, um, so I asked, you know, I asked people, um, and and a lot of the times it's just scheduling. It's not, you know, some some people are in the middle of of something else, and they just can't do it. Right. Um, but but luckily for me, I think I think the the vast majority of people I asked said I'll do something for you. And then some people I had to kind of bring along and said you can do this. This is a great idea. You know, we would we would talk about it. And uh and eventually they produced something that was terrific. So right. so you know I, I try to be an editor that's on the side of writers. But I want great writing and I'm you know and I'm demanding. I I I want it because it's gonna be my book and I want great writing in this book. And so uh, that was always my mentality and, uh, to respect to respect what I'm trying to create as an anthology. And to reinforce what you're saying, you came out with an anthology several years ago. I don't remember how many years because since the pandemic, I have no sense of time. Things that I thought were yesterday were a year ago. But you were <laughs> you came up with a book I believe it was called Crossing Borders, and uh, it was a wonderful anthology. And before you 
when you were still conceiving of it, you wrote me an email and says, hey, can you contribute to this? And I completely forgot. I just completely forgot. And then when I saw it come out, it was so beautiful. Well, that's the reason why I wasn't in it. So I, I know that's going to happen a lot. Yeah. No, and, and, and it's okay. You know, some people are busy and, and it's not that I didn't like their work. Um, sometimes people are busy. Sometimes it's just they don't have something that quite fits what you're looking for as an editor. Right, right. Well, the name of the book is Nepantla Familias, an anthology of Mexican-American literature on families uh, in between worlds. So where can people get more information about this book um, and uh, follow well, it, it? Well, it's published by Texas A&M Press and the Whitcliffe Collections. So the Whitcliffe Collections are really the, the people funding this book. Um, they're terrific. And, and by the way, that's where I'm going to have my literary papers in San Marcos, Texas, and, and with the Whitcliffe collection. Are they paying, they you, are they paying you a million dollars? How much are they paying you? Well, <laughs> None no, of your business, check on. Not, not a million. <laughs> but, um, but you know, you can find it at Barnes & Noble. You, you know, uh, by the way, literary is going to be carrying, they just ordered uh, 40 copies of it. Nice, nice. Um, so literary and, and, and um, you know, uh, by Pepper Tree Square in El Paso, we'll have copies of Nepantla Familia, and I'll probably go in there and sign a few copies. I'm going to be in El Paso, I hope, soon. Well, if, 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 uh, if everybody is vaccinated and we're able to have, uh, you know, some sort of event, count me in. I, I, yeah. I completely oh, support this book and I support literarity and, uh, you know, and there's so many El Paso writers in here. We could actually get a few inside that story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I just got my first dose of the Pfizer uh, vaccine and I'm about to get my second dose in a, about a week and a half. Excellent. So soon yeah. I'll be in good shape and I'll travel and, and you know, and I, but everyone else has to be in, in some similar shape. Yeah, you know, I, to do all I, of that I, traveling. I guess the um, uh, the CDC just yesterday uh, was announced, came out with uh, guidelines about those who have received both shots, both uh, 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 shots of the vaccine, that uh, that they can now officially get together uh, without masks, uh, uh, you know, hanging out like 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 we used to, if you remember back then. <laughs> well, well, we'll we'll hang out and talk about Nepantla Familias. Yeah, I, I've got my two vaccines, and uh, just to uh, just to make sure, I'm going to go and get two more. <laughs> Terrific for you. Well, you know, you figure they say after the second shot, you're 95 percent invulnerable, and if you wear two masks, a double mask, you're 95 percent vulnerable. So I figure I'm at least 190 uh, percent invulnerable, and if I get another one, boy, I'll just be like Superman. <laughs> Well, I, I didn't know you could fly. <laughs> no, just kidding. I'm, I'm being silly. Well, thank you, Sergio, for joining, uh, for joining me once again on Words on a Wire. And uh, it's a fantastic book, and I wish you the best on it. Daniel, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, thank you for inviting me to Words on a Wire. I'd like to thank my guests. Sergio Troncoso for joining me on Words on a Wire. Don't forget, go out and buy books. Buy books today. And a good way to start is by buying Nepantla Familias, an anthology of Mexican-American literature on families in between worlds. See you next time. Mm -hmm.